turn your great idea into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com myths for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code myths to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the fairy tales of Italian writer Giambattista Basile. And you'll see that having a pet is a big responsibility, either because they have a magical stone in their brain that will give you anything you wish for, or because their food is your blood. The creature this week is either a hero, a smelly villain, or an eagle-catching, forest fire-starting cat in need of a toothbrush. This is Myths and Legends, episode 188, Forever Home. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you'd think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We're back in the literary fairy tales of Giambattista Basile, one of the originals in terms of folklore. Writing from the Kingdom of Naples in the 17th century, it's thought that he took oral tales, worked his magic on them, and then wrote them down to tell at court. So basically this podcast in the 17th century. Among many famous tales, he told that horrifying, off-the-wall original version of Sleeping Beauty that we told not terribly long ago. Today, we're going to jump in with two stories, both involving pets. The first is about a beggar and his chicken, well, rooster, and how even though he's starving, he just can't bring himself to... You know. Mineko Eniello looked down at his rooster. His rooster? Well, no wonder that hen was so cheap. He had spent his last coin on a miniature hen and raised it on the breadcrumbs he found in the street and the garbage, and barring that, he would take a walk in the country and let it eat whatever seeds it could find. He was excited because semi-regular eggs were much better than the nothing he currently had. Additionally, maybe he could find a rooster and get some more chickens. This was the start of something good. Well, Mineko found his rooster, because his hen was his rooster. He knew it was too good to be true. His farming endeavor, like all of his other endeavors, had failed. Now, he was a 60-something man with a tangled beard stinking gray hair down to the small of his back, and exactly four and a half teeth in his mouth. Things were not going great. Now his rooster was full grown. The creature was as big as a miniature rooster could get, but by virtue of it being raised on scraps, and not many scraps at that, it wasn't particularly big or fat. Even that meal he could get from the rooster would be a paltry one. Still, as he sat next to his boiling pot, suspended over a few burning coals in his alleyway. He gritted his teeth. All right, just pick it up, grab its neck, twist, take the creature he had raised from a chick, pluck out the feather. You know what? He couldn't do this. He took the water off the fire and covered the coals to snuff out the flame. Mineko scooped up the rooster and headed to the market.
Hey, what's up? The vendor said, looking at Mineko and his rooster. This was the last stall on the last street. No one had been interested in Mineko's likely tough and stringy mini rooster. That's what led him to the... Necromancers? Mineko asked. You guys run a necromancy stall? Like, do you bring people back from the dead? The necromancers looked at each other and nodded. Yeah, I mean, no. This is the late Middle Ages. And in some cultures, any person who practices magic in any capacity is called a necromancer. You should read it as like sorcerers or sorcerers. How can we help you? Meneko shrugged. He didn't really care what they did. He held up his rooster. He said he had a rooster for sale. Now, this was yes, the two men said in unison and immediately. Mineko stopped talking. Seriously? Just like that? The two men looked at each other. Yes. How much did the old man want for it? Quarter coin? Half a coin? Mineko jumped at half a coin. That was ten times what he had hoped for from selling a virtually useless rooster. It was half his initial investment. But that's the type of risk you took when you played the flock market. The necromancers looked at the till. Huh. They didn't really have any amounts of money that small with them. Did Mineko mind following them back to their apartment so they could get half a coin? Mineko glanced over the counter. Or they could just give him a full coin. The necromancers closed their till. Negotiation wasn't really Mineko's strong suit. Let's go. So the trio trudged through the streets of Black Grotto, the city. Just in front of Mineko, the two necromancers grinned. This was... It. As we all know, select roosters have a stone in their head, or their heart, according to Pliny the Elder. When the stone is taken out and set in a ring, that ring will give you anything you wish for. The necromancers were excited. They talked back and forth to one another about how they were going to give poverty a kick in the face, smooth out their stockings, and move out of their dingy apartment. This Mineko, he didn't even realize what he had here. But it was the necromancers who didn't realize how loud they were talking. Mineko heard the entire conversation about how they were going to use the rooster stone to get everything they could wish for. He clutched his rooster and bolted down an alleyway. The necromancers were at their shared studio apartment before they realized Mineko was gone. Back in his alleyway, Mineko looked down at the rooster. Yeah, sorry bud. Wringing the animal's neck and digging a stone out of its brain or heart was much easier when getting everything you could ever wish for was on the table. Using a sharp piece of broken pottery, Mineko extracted the stone from the rooster's brain or heart. He dug through his pack, his meager possessions, and found a cheap brass ring that he had picked off the street one day when he was out feeding the rooster. He still had friends in town. He had lived in Black Grotto his whole life, so he went to a nearby jeweler who was having a slow afternoon, and you know what? Sure, he would set a slimy stone and a brass ring for Mineko on credit. Credit he knew Mineko wasn't good for, but whatever, like he said, it was a slow day. Less than an hour later, Mineko was back in his alleyway. He slipped on the ring and made his first wish. He wanted to be an 18-year-old boy again. Instantly, his legs were stronger. The wrinkles on his face disappeared. His hair was black again, and his mouth, which the story colorfully described as a ransacked farmhouse, filled with teeth. His beard was thick and clean. He was 18 again. He looked at his alleyway and stood. He walked. He walked for the rest of the day, camping by the side of the road 
and producing a dinner from the ring. The next day, he sat in front of a desolate plot of land and held up the ring. Well, here goes nothing. Prince Mineko, the 28-year-old, 68-year-old, was doing all right. Almost a decade ago, he wished he had a magnificent palace and that he was the relative of a king. Seconds later, the mansion appeared on a plot of land. Days later, an envoy from the king appeared at his door. One tour where they saw his paintings, his dazzling statues, his bedazzled everything, they invited him to the palace. It wasn't long before he was engaged to the princess. He and Natalizia were happy, and less than a year later, they welcomed their first daughter into the world. Even though Mineko was the prince next in line for the throne, he never forgot who he was or where he came from. He only had as many servants as he needed, and he still liked going into Black Grotto to go shopping. That was where everything went wrong. They wouldn't have suspected it was Mineko early on, and they didn't. It was just some rich kid spreading his wealth around. It took Mineko aging 10 years, until he started to look like someone the necromancers in the market knew from a long time ago. One time, while the prince was walking through, he met eyes with the necromancers. The gaze lingered for a moment longer than normal. Then, they noticed something. Why did the opulent prince wear such a cheap brass ring with some unknown stone set in it? The necromancers looked at each other. This was him. This was the guy. He was living their life, the one that had been in their grasp that day at the market. This was their life, and they were going to get it back. You like dolls? The two men said from outside the fence. Three months of scouting, and they learned the schedule of Mineko's young daughter. The girl of seven played in the yard, while the few servants in the house went about their day. She saw the two strangers at the fence, and walked over. She smiled. She loved it. She reached out, but the men pulled it back. Uh-uh-uh. It wasn't free. She nodded. She could go back and get however much money the men wanted. Her dad was generous. Again, they shook their heads. Nope. This couldn't be bought with money. They wanted something small. Something that her dad wouldn't even miss. Did the girl know the ring her dad always wore? The girl thought about it and nodded. Pentella, the daughter, was hesitant. But the necromancers held up a hand. This wasn't stealing. Her daddy always bought her dolls, right? She nodded. Well, this was easy. Just come back with the ring. And it was like he was buying her a doll. Just, it was a surprise to him. Besides, this was a beautiful doll, and it was just a cheap brass ring. The dad would be thrilled about the deal. The next morning, she screamed. She cried. Meneko said that he had a meeting with the king today. He wanted to leave her like this. What was going on? Pentella, in full meltdown, looked at his finger and pointed. Meneko stepped back. His ring? Pentella stopped crying and nodded. Meneko looked to the princess who shrugged. It was just a cheap brass ring with a weird misshapen stone in it. Let her play with it. She would make sure Pentella didn't lose it. Mineko grimaced. Ah, okay. He was late and he didn't have time to argue this. Sure, just please, don't let her lose it. He slipped off the ring and put it on the table. Pentella wiped her eyes and smiled. She thanked her dad. 
who looked at the ring about 16 more times before rushing out the door and into a waiting carriage. You, uh, you got the ring? The two strangers at the fence asked later on that day. It took Pentel all morning to sneak away from her mother, but now she was here with the ring. She nodded. Did they have the doll? Both men grinned. Yep, right behind their collective backs. Ring first. The seven-year-old rushed up to the fence and passed the men the ring. They snatched it from her hand, showed her their empty ones, and told her to don't trust necromancers. That bit of advice was her payment for the ring. They took off. The necromancers stopped just inside the forest and looked down at the rooster stone in their ring. Now, Mineko hadn't used the ring in years. He used it three times to make himself 18 again, give himself fabulous wealth, and marry a princess. But he wasn't a greedy man. Still, I guess knowing the ring was there was enough to help him face the future with confidence. Well, it wasn't there. Not anymore. And Mineko thought about that as he met with the king, his father-in-law. He felt weirdly naked, and he'd get it back as soon as he returned home. The necromancers weren't content to let a man like Mineko live in peace. Maybe it was revenge for keeping the stone that had been his in the first place, or maybe it was self-preservation. Can't have the son of the king coming after you. Better to make sure he wasn't the son of the king anymore. As Mineko sat across from the king, he noticed the man's face morphed from concern to terror. Mineko was about to ask what was wrong, but his mouth was full of teeth, but not in the normal good way. He spat them out on the floor, and his long, stinking gray hair fluttered down into his eyes. He rose, not as quickly as he had in the past decade, and he rushed to the mirror and felt his now sagging face. He looked at the lines, the wrinkles, looked down to his clothes, the torn rags that still had rooster on them, and he turned back to his father. Now, if you just watched your 20-something-year-old son-in-law turn into an old man, you could see if he needs help. Ask him what's going on. Heck, demand an explanation? Sure. Or you could just skip all that. Have your men drag him to the street and beat him with a stick before telling him not to come back. His house was still there, and his daughter was weeping in the dirt when Mineko limped up. She shrieked, but was calmed when she heard his voice. She was crying. She said she was so sorry. She had been tricked. The bad men had taken his ring. His face dropped. Then it wasn't the magic wearing off or something. It was the necromancers. They had tricked his daughter and stolen his ring. He looked up at his house. His wife was now 40 years younger than him. And yeah, she had always been 40 years younger than him, but she hadn't known about that, so that was better. He decided that she couldn't see him like this. He told his daughter to tell no one. He would return, but only when he found his ring and set everything right. The girl heard her mom calling and turned around. When she turned back, the strange man was gone. Her father was gone. Mineko walked. He walked in old boots and a cloak with a knapsack, all stolen from his own servants' quarters. He made a club for himself. He couldn't pay for passage on a ship, but he couldn't imagine the men needing to leave the country. 
No one knew about them but a sad old vagabond. They were free. So he walked. He camped off the road. He didn't need any more trouble than he already had. And if he found the necromancers, he'd get his ring back. If he didn't, well, his wife and daughter would forever remember him as he wanted to be remembered. Camping one night, he snapped awake. The fire had burned low, but he saw shadows moving among the trees. There were voices too. He reached for his club, or tried to. His hands were bound. He heard in hushed whispers, he's awake, do it now. Just then, a burlap sack slid pretty slowly over Mineko's head. He felt himself being lifted from the ground. It was a few hours later when he came to rest on a cold stone floor. Do you know where you are? A voice boomed. Mineko shook his head. No, no, he didn't know where he was. Wasn't that the point of the bag, though? Hit him again, the voice commanded. Mineko felt a tap on his head and braced himself for the strike. Was that the hit? Mineko asked, but the voice interrupted. They will be asking the questions here, and yes, there will be much more where that came from, unless the man talked. Who did he work for? Mineko shrugged. He had been self-employed, kind of idle rich. I guess if he had to say something, currently he was in between magical fortunes. Enough, hit him again. Mineko felt another, a tap that gently rapped on his burlap. What brought you to the city of Darkhole? Who do you work for? The snakes? The cats? Mineko said he had absolutely no idea what was going on. Seriously, could they remove the hood so... Wait, tiny taps, snakes, cats. Were they mice? The burlap sack came off, again, slowly, because it took a team of mice working in conjunction, like people trying to cover and uncover a baseball diamond for a rain delay. Mineka looked around the room. He was in the cramped hallway of a mouse dungeon. Locked doors he couldn't hope to fit in were all around him. What was this? A prison for mice? If he was going to be forced to stay here, it should be at least three times bigger, Mineko yelled. The lead mouse interrogator stepped forward. He was their prisoner, their captive. They made the demands and his forced early 2000s pop culture references wouldn't get him too far here. Roscone, the lead mouse, gestured to an underling. They needed to accelerate this. You, bite him. Bite him until he talks. The mouse looked at Mineko's skin. Uh, boss, he looked really dirty. Like, I know we're mice, but I might legitimately get sick here. The lead mouse turned back to Mineko. Yeah, why are you so dirty? So. Mineko told him. He told them all about his hard life up until the rooster stone, about finding it and all of his dreams coming true, and then about finding love and happiness before having all of that ripped away by two selfish necromancers. When he was done, there wasn't a dry mouse eye in the dungeon, despite the fact that mice can't really cry. The next thing Mineko knew, the mice were chewing through the ropes behind his hands. Then, the mouse scurried over, and whispered in Roscone's ear, remember the king mouse, and this information was good. The messenger mouse nodded, bowed, and left. The king mouse turned back to Mineko. He should take a seat. Mineko, who was basically poured into the hallway, tried to gesture to that fact, that he was completely stuck in the hallway, 
and after an awkward half hour of shimmying backwards out of a mouse dungeon and refusing some polite but mouse-infested trash food, the Mouse King informed the man of the intelligence that just came to his attention. They had been found. Two of the Mouse soldiers, Rudolo and Sartariello, just returned from a posting at a high-end hotel called the Inn of the Horn, a favorite hotel of cuckolds. Mineko cocked his head, okay, that he doesn't know why that's relevant, but continue. The Mouse King did. He said that one night two men from the Hooked Castle came through, and as they got to the bottom of their wine jugs, they started bragging about how they had just taken a magic ring from some old man in Black Grotto. He would never take it off, so he wouldn't lose it like the old man did when he gave it to his daughter. Now, the mice might have tried to steal it for themselves, but the ring didn't look like anything special, and you shouldn't place much stock in the bragging of strangers in hotel bars, especially when they're drinking wine by the jug. They filed the report anyway, and forgot about it, until they heard the exact same story just now. Mineko stood. This was them. This was his first real lead in, well, forever. Then he paused. He didn't know where Hooked Castle was. And even if he made it, he would never be able to get in without them knowing. He needed the help of the mice. The King Mouse shook his shaggy, smelly little mouse head. It was too dangerous. They would be too exposed. He would never send his mice into that much danger. Period. End of conversation. What if I give you, like, a wheel of cheese and a few pounds of meat once I get the ring back? Mineko proposed. We'll do it. The Mouse King extended a paw. And Mineko shook it in an adorable little handshake. We'll see the endgame of Mineko and the Mice. But that will be right after this. The Necromancers, deciding to stay on brand, made a sweet, sinister-looking necromancer castle for themselves. It was complete with faceless zombie guards, a bottomless pit, a rotating pointed throne. They had thought of Everything, except mice. When Enerone, one of the necromancers, slept, two mice crept up through the bedroom. One even Jafar would think was a bit much, and they found the ring finger. They confirmed that this was the ring, and bit. Enerone tossed in his sleep and pulled his hand away. The mice waited until his breathing regulated again, scurried to his hand, and again, bit down. It took three tries until, half asleep, Enerone felt his hand for something that had been causing the pain. He found the ring and slipped it off. One mouse dragged the ring from the bedside table while the other covered their escape. They slipped past the multi-headed dogs and the lava pits before taking the ring out to Mineko, waiting in the dark forest that of course surrounded their evil wizard necromancer castle. Mineko slipped the ring on, mumbled a few words, and instantly his hair was black, his legs were strong, and his teeth existed. He turned to the mice. As promised, he made another wish. And they were suddenly standing atop a whole stack of cheese wheels and meat. And how are we supposed to get this home? The mice asked. Mineko smirked. Oh, just wait. The castle in the distance started drifting away, like dust on the wind. 
revealing two confused and terrified donkeys. After Maneko used the ring to bring the donkeys to himself and piled the cheese and meat on one, the mice looked at each other, and then to Maneko. Wait, were these the necromancers? You out-necromancered them? Maneko shook his head. That's not a word. You out-necroed the mancers? Maneko said that one was even farther. Let's go. The mice of Dark Hole were grateful for the gift, and Maneko led the two donkeys back home, where he explained to his father-in-law, the king, that dangerous necromancers had transformed him into an old man, not really mentioning that that was actually his true age and form. He told his happy wife and terrified daughter that he had been away on a business trip. He got some donkeys. Now, if they would excuse him, he needed to drive these donkeys off a cliff. And that's the end of our story. Everyone lived happily ever after, except the donkeys. Our next story is about a king who has a pet, a giant bloodsucker who's really just the world's most repulsive good boy. Who's my baby? You're my baby, the king said as he stroked his pet. Oh, you want some blood? Yeah, have some blood. Daddy's big boy needs his blood. Dad? Who are you talking to in there? The king heard with a knock at the door. No one? He turned to his pet and whispered, hide. The flea the size of a house cat scrambled underneath the king's bed. Who are you talking to? The daughter demanded when the king answered his door. Who are you talking to? King said, cocking his head. Hmm, got her. I'm, I'm talking to you? Seriously, though. The king stepped back from the door. Seriously, though, he needed to get back to work. King stuff. He slammed the door in her face. He dropped to his belly as he heard her shoes clicking on the stones outside. Good, she was gone. Now, where were they? It had been three months. Three months since the king lying in bed, still half-made from the night before, snagged a flea beneath his fingernails. The fleas then affected every level of society. John Donne has a poem where he tries to convince a woman to be with him because a nearby flea had bit both of them and their fluids, their blood, had already mingled. And if the mingling in the flea is innocent enough, well, you know. Anyway, our flea bit the king and now faced its own death on the guillotine of the king's thumbnail. But the king looked at the poor, struggling insect. He sighed. He reached to his bedside table, finished what was left of the carafe of wine, and dropped the flea in. He now had a pet. And he was surprised by how much he thought about the little guy. He would prick his finger a bit, and drop his blood into the carafe daily, and the flea, with this steady diet of royal blood, was thriving the king got the flea out of the craft before it grew too big to squeeze through the opening. And as the mouse-sized creature scurried around the floor, the king smiled for the first time since he lost his queen. He didn't need a cage. The flea was happy to stick around for free daily blood. And the king started thinking ahead so he didn't pass out, draining more than he needed each day and saving it for his pet. For the first time in a while, he was excited to wake up in the morning. He slept with the creature curled at his feet and it grew on his blood until it was the size of a lamb. We don't know how it happened, but I like to think that the king woke up one morning, his door still barred, and found his pet still at his feet. Maybe it was because the flea's purpose was complete, 
helping the king deal with the death of his wife and move forward. Maybe it's because fleas aren't supposed to be the size of lambs. Who knows? Either way, the flea was dead. The king stroked the skin of his friend, the flea, weeping tears not of tragedy, but of joy for the short time they had together. Then he paused. Hmm. Dad, why why are you covered in blood? The princess asked the king as he rushed past her. He said he was rushing to the tanner. Don't worry, all this was his blood. He would explain later. And later, he kind of explained it. The princess found out with the rest of the court that she was getting married. And that weird, blood-covered skin had a big role to play. The king gestured to the skin out on the rack for all to see. Usually, princesses were given away in marriage to secure money or political alliances, or because she loves the man she's to marry? The princess asked. (laughs) The court laughed. The king here had a fun contest, one that would define the rest of his daughter's life. Whoever, rich, poor, commoner, noble, criminal, merchant, explorer, anyone, whoever guessed what type of skin this was on display, got to marry his daughter. No questions asked. Just got to marry her and leave the same day. The people were excited, and they shouted out things like, big monster cat, crocodile, lynx. But the king just stood there shaking his head. No, 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 no. A week passed, then two. The king, smugly self-assured that no one would be able to guess, sat back with a smirk every day. Then he arrived. A man, or something like a man, lurched into the hall. The people who didn't flee were frozen in place. An ogre, with a club slung over his shoulder, ducked as he went through the final doorway. He was so terrifying that one translation I found said that he invoked tremors and, yes, instant diarrhea in those who saw him. The king's smirk was now forced, and what could he do to help this fine, horrifying gentleman? The ogre didn't answer. He just approached the stretched out skin, smelled it, and turned to the king. Flee. The king chuckled. Uh, What did he say? Flee. The ogre was more insistent now. The king was suddenly more aware of the giant's club. This hide belongs to the king of the fleas. The king swallowed hard. Oh no. So, we all agree that God is in control, and that, like, not a leaf falls without the will of the heavens, right? The king said to Porziella, his daughter. Yeah? The princess replied. This was the Middle Ages, and they were all very religious, so she felt like she had to say that. But she asked her father to please tell her if this had anything to do with the ogre holding a club in the throne room. The king grimaced at his daughter. Okay, look, I'm not gonna lie to you. Then... After a long pause, he turned to the ogre. All right, take her away. The ogre scooped at the princess, who was screaming threats at her father, but the king only shook his head. This complaining? It wasn't a good look for her. He was the king, and she had no right to question his will. All right, bye, congrats, you two. A few hours later, deep in the dark forest, 
poor Ziella arrived at her betrothed's house. It had really just been a bachelor pad with his own tacky little decorations, like the remains of humans he had eaten, just left dangling on the walls. Kind of puts a new spin on the phrase man cave with the remains of actual men hanging on the walls. He told her to sit. He will be back with a special meal for his special lady. Looking down at the half-cooked human arm on her plate, Porziella gagged and pushed it away. Okay, picky. Well, in two days, it would be the big day, and he was having all of his family over for it. Some of them had dietary restrictions, so he was going out to round up some boars for them. She could eat that if his best day-old human wasn't good enough for her. She shuddered as he kissed her on the forehead, and he said he was going out. Love you. Also, don't run away because this is the dark forest and I'll hunt you down. Bye, honey. Porziella broke down sobbing, and she didn't even know how much time had passed before she heard a voice at the window. She turned and saw an old woman, a traveler in the forest. Hey, sorry to bug you, but you guys got any food? She looked at the wall and grimaced. You know, besides people? She was a traveler of the fairy tale dark forest, and while she wasn't judgy, she also was not interested. Porziella told her about everything that happened with her dad and the ogre, and the woman, listening from the windowsill, asked if Porziella wanted out. Porziella asked if that was a serious question. Yes, she wanted out. The old woman looked left and right. All right, well, Porziella was in luck. She had seven sons, seven giant sons. Mase, Nardo, Cola, Miko, Petrullo, Ascadio, and Sassone. Every time Mase puts his ear to the ground, he can hear what's happening up to 30 miles away. Whenever Nardo spits, he makes a sea of soap. Whenever Cola throws iron on the ground, it covers it in sharpened razors. When Miko hurls a stick, a forest pops up. When Petrullo shakes a drop of water onto the ground, a river flows from it. When Escadio tosses a stone, a tower springs up from the ground. And when Sassone shoots a crossbow, he can hit a chicken's eye from a mile away. Porziello rose. Yes, definitely, let's go. Let's go to your large adult sons now. The old woman told Porziella she lived far away. She wouldn't be back before the ogre returned. She would come back tomorrow. Hold on for one more day. Honey, I'm home the ogre yelled. He kissed Porziella on the forehead. Uh, they didn't have any pigs, but he was able to pick up some people. And then dismember them. Porziella nearly threw up, but she was heartened by the news that, because of his failure to get pork that day, he would be heading out again tomorrow. I don't know what happened that night. The story doesn't say that anything happened, but it does say that Porziella woke up happy and excited. I kind of can't imagine that a human-eating ogre who doesn't have any problem kidnapping a woman and forcing her into marriage would then be a gentleman and wait for their non-consensual marriage, but, you know, who knows. Regardless, he left the next day, and not ten minutes later, a wagon rolled up with the old woman and her seven sons. They waved her on. Let's get out of here. <laughs> They didn't need Mase's ears to know that the ogre was onto them. They heard his footsteps and his screams. He had forgotten something and come back early. Nardo, Cola, 
Masayel to his two younger brothers. Nardo spit a sea of soap, and Kola tossed a hunk of iron out, which filled the road with razor blades. Apparently, they were moving so slowly that when the ogre saw the sea of soap and the razor blades, he had time to go all the way back home and get some bran and a suit of iron. The bran helped him cross the narrow sea, somehow, and the iron defended him against the spikes. Miko made a forest pop up. The ogre smashed through. Petrulo made a rushing river appear. The ogre got naked and swam across. A nude ogre sprinting after them, gaining on them. The group realized that this was not going well. Escadio threw a stone, and a tower shot up from the ground in front of them. They rushed the horses in the carriage to the door at the base of the tower, and got in just as the ogre was approaching, slamming it and barring it from the inside. As they rushed to the top of the tower, they heard the ogre outside, grunting as he climbed. They flung open the trap door at the top, and just as they all emerged, the ogre's face popped over the wall. But there was one more brother. Sasone took aim with the crossbow, and he let a bolt fly. He could hit a chicken at a mile, so an ogre at ten feet was nothing. There was a reason why Sasone waited. It was because even though he hit the monster square in the eye, the crossbow bolt didn't kill it. And neither did the fall, when the ogre, just as shocked, felt the arrow coming out of his head, and then realized that a very important part of climbing a stone wall was holding on. Thankfully, Sasone was as fast as he was accurate. And, with the ogre still stunned on the ground, Sasone used the ogre's own hunting knife to cut his head off. It was over. Porziella was safe. Safe to return directly to her father, who had put her in that situation in the first place. So I guess he could live through his dream of being a game show host. He gave the old woman and all her sons so much money, and to his credit, he was apologetic, begging his daughter's forgiveness a thousand times, and vowing not to marry her to monsters she didn't love. The young woman smiled. And then her father finished. Unless, you know, it was politically expedient. That is it for this week. If you want to learn more, I linked both of the originals on the episode post on mythpodcast.com. Next week, we're going to start on the Nibelungalide, a Germanic epic that's like if the saga of the Volsungs was set in the High Middle Ages and also changed the plot and the characters. It's really fun. People have been recommending it forever, and I can't wait to tell it. The creature this week is the Wampus Cat from North America. There are a few different versions of the Wampus Cat. In some places, it's an amphibious cat. In others, it's a cat-dog hybrid that's more just mean and less like the one from the old-school Nickelodeon show that made you wonder how it went to the bathroom. The most common version of this story is that of a Cherokee woman who wanted to learn something that was forbidden to her. Legend has it that she hid under a mountain lion cloak and watched the forbidden magic or learn the forbidden knowledge. And breaking that rule, the skin of the cougar fused with her own and she would spend the rest of her life cursed to live as a monster in the wild, smelling like the combo of a wet dog and a skunk. Another, more heroic version of the tale 
has the woman finding and fighting a demon spreading madness in their village. After her husband went mad facing the creature, this one took place in what is now North Carolina, and the woman turned the spirit of the mountain cat on the demon by surprising it and vanquishing it. She then returned a hero, and her spirit inhabited that of the wampus cat to protect her people from the demons that hide in the dark and lost places. There's yet a third version, a fearsome critter with an extending right arm that hunts eagles, spreads blister rust on trees, who can start forest fires with their eyes, can only be tracked by their footprints on solid rock, and will steal prospectors' pickaxes to brush their teeth, which, given the declining number of pickaxe-wielding prospectors since this book was written in 1910, someone should probably get this version of the wampus cat an actual toothbrush. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.